Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I had to rewatch Joe Biden's Everybody's Going to Get Vaccinated speech. And I found one part, the one part where he was actually telling the truth, where he got it right. My job as president is to protect all Americans. Yes, that is your job. That is the job of the president that you are, it seems, deliberately failing at fulfilling. Yes, deliberately. I mean, look, you tell me, how can he do what he did yesterday? Yet let this continue. All of these illegal immigrants come into the country unvaccinated. You think they're getting back? They're not getting vaccinated. These folks, most of them haven't been vaccinated against anything, yet they're coming in and Joe Biden's fine with it. Then we put them in those ridiculous conditions with those space blankets all jammed in there, right? This is a COVID super spreader 24-7 down there. And then we really give it another boost, a boost as far as spreading by putting them in buses and spreading it all over the country. If he really cared, if he really, really was committed to his job of protecting America, would he do this? Of course not. Of course not. It defies common sense, common sense of a first grader. I mean, this does not make sense. And they seem to know it, right? This is the press secretary today, asked point blank about this lunacy. As a requirement for people at a business with more than 100 people, it is not a requirement for migrants at the southern border. Why? That's correct. Go ahead. That's correct. It's not a requirement for people at the southern border, for the immigrants. That's correct. Moving on. I mean, they're fine with it. I, I am starting to think this really is deliberate. They really want to undermine America. They love COVID. They want to keep it going. Uh, permanent COVID state. They can have all the power and uh, do whatever they want come election time. Hmm? Anyway, officially, this is what it's all about. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. 
Now, if you look at that, and if you listen, it's not quite, you know, he's not the emperor. Uh, he can't actually make this happen. He's going to ask the Department of Labor. They're going to come up with a rule, not a law, but a rule. All right, well, rules, no. It would take a law to do this, and that's got to come from Congress. That was my first impression, and we were backed up by Professor Alan Dershowitz from Harvard. And I'm just not sure he has the authority without legislative authorization to make 80 million people and more get uh, vaccinated. I mean, really, it, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious he, he does not have the authority. Uh, again, this is all a plot to change the subject from Afghanistan. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, you got Alan Dershowitz. Oh, and Governor DeSantis. This was great. I mean, this guy's a major league intellect and a fighter. The problem I have with Joe Biden more than anything, this guy doesn't take responsibility for anything. He's always trying to blame other people, blame other states. This is a guy that promised when he ran for president that he would shut down the virus. If you look now, there's 300% more cases in this country today than a year ago when we had no vaccines at all. He's saying he's losing patience with people. You know, at the end of the day, we don't live um, with a one-person rule in this country. We live in a constitutional system which people's rights are respected, but particularly in this juncture, their livelihoods and their jobs have to be protected. And I think it'll ultimately lose in court, but be in, be before that, you know, there needs to be action taken uh, to protect the people of our state and hopefully of the entire United States. Nobody should lose their job based on this decision. All right. Yeah. Governor DeSantis, the guy is uh, awesome. So, by the way, we saw some real pettiness from the president yesterday as he's trying to talk tough and be bold and decisive. He also got into the minutia and he seemed kind of nasty about it. And by the way, show some respect. The anger you see on television toward flight attendants and others doing their job is wrong. It's ugly. Well, it's ugly actually trying to get two-year-old kids to wear masks, all right? That's part of the equation as well. Uh, some of these, uh, yeah, some of these images, some of these situations have been totally ridiculous. And Joe Biden shows some respect. We've all seen how he's behaved. They're actually, he's not as powerful as he wants us to think. There are some small things he's recommending. Makes it sound like it's big, but um, how about this one? Today... I'm announcing that the Defense Department will double the number of military health teams that they'll deploy to help their fellow Americans in hospitals around the country. Wow, double the number of military defense teams to civilian hospitals around. Did you know we had that already? I didn't. We're talking very, very small numbers. You see, he's showing off, getting into the minutia, telling the Department of Labor, who will tell OSHA to come up with a new rule, and he can't do this stuff. But when he actually had a great deal of authority and latitude and power to do stuff, like as commander in chief in Afghanistan and sitting there in the Situation Room with all of his uh, top aides, he had tremendous power and latitude and he blew it. He totally blew it. You know the images by now. We'll never forget all those people running around that plane. This is on him. He desperately wants us to forget we're not going to. And this, I thought it couldn't get worse than this, but it did. Let's go. Let's go. 
course, it actually did get worse, even worse than this, when our 13 heroes came home in boxes. In boxes. Joe Biden is a professional empty suit, and I believe he is compromised, and I think he is being used. He is being used probably by this guy. If I could make an arrangement where um, I had a, I had a, a stand-in, a front man or front woman, and, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement in my sweats mm -hmm. looking through the stuff, and then I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was uh, doing all the talking and ceremony, wow. I, I'd be fine with that. I bet you would, and I bet you are. Something very creepy about that moment. And did you see Stephen Colbert just digging it every step of the way? Ha <laughs> ha, that's so funny. I don't think they were kidding. Look, Barack Obama governed as a, as a liberal, but there are a lot of things apparently he wanted to do that he couldn't get done because he didn't think uh, white folk would stand for it. And now that he's no longer in power, he's opening up about that to uh, his buddy Bruce Springsteen. So if you ask me, theoretically, are reparations justified? The answer is yes. What I saw during my presidency was that the politics of white resistance and resentment, all that made the prospect of actually proposing any kind of coherent, meaningful reparations program struck me as politically not only a non-starter, but potentially counterproductive. He talks like he's talking in slow motion, doesn't he? White resistance, white resentment. Hey, white people love this guy. Elected him twice, millions and millions. You got, he would not have been president, but now he's all about the negative aspects of white people, those who uh, might resist a, a radical left-wing agenda. That's who he is. You know, I read his book, his, what, seventh about himself, Promised Land. Every reference to white people, overwhelmingly negative. White fear, white flight, uh, white bigotry. Everything white seems to be bad. Everything black, though, seems to be great. 80%, 83% of the references to black people, black issues, all positive slash sympathetic. So we know he's a radical. We know he liked things like reparations. Uh, he thinks he could not get that done himself when he was president. Now he's got the ultimate stand-in, a professional empty suit airhead uh, guy who stands for pretty much nothing, who may be compromised, and he's given him instructions, perhaps, from somewhere else. It actually makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. Because what happened in Afghanistan doesn't make sense. I mean, why would we do that? But at the direction of somebody like Obama, who cares nothing for American prestige, actually went around apologizing for our mistakes, what happened in Afghanistan is starting to make some degree of sense. Take a look at this, will you please? This is the phone call as reported by Reuters between President Ghani, then the leader of Afghanistan, and Joe Biden. He's pleading with him about the situation. Mr. President, we are facing a full-scale invasion composed of Taliban, full Pakistani planning and logistical support, and at least 10 to 15,000 international terrorists, predominantly Pakistanis, 
thrown into this. I just spoke again to Dr. Abdullah earlier. He went to negotiate with the Taliban. The Taliban showed no inclination. We can get to peace only if we rebalance the military situation. He is asking for military help. They need it. The Afghan leader doesn't believe that the Afghan army can pull it off, and he's afraid of the Taliban. Joe Biden was only afraid of the optics. It looks bad. We got to say that we're beating the Taliban. In the end, what happened? Optics can't get the job done. And all those weapons are now in the hands of the bad guys, our enemies. That could possibly be a criminal act. I'd like to show you something from the from the law book, all right? It has been determined that it is unlawful to knowingly provide material support to a foreign terrorist organization that has been designated by the Secretary of State. Well, that includes the Taliban. And arguably, what Joe Biden did was knowingly provide material support to a foreign terrorist organization. All of these weapons being so carelessly, criminally, carelessly handled, I think that a case might be able to be made. By the way, Donald Trump never, ever, ever would have let this happen. When he declared for president all the way back in 2015, this is his very first speech, June 16, 2015, he talked about the weapons left over in Iraq and how mad he was about that. Leftover weapons in the hands of our enemies was a major concern, one of the reasons why he ran for president in the first place. And every time we give Iraq equipment, the first time a bullet goes off in the air, they leave it. Last week I read 2,300 Humvees. These are big vehicles were left behind for the enemy. 2,000, you would say maybe two, maybe four? 2,300 sophisticated vehicles they ran and the enemy took them. Now I'm hearing that was the situation in Iraq when we got out. Maybe 600,000 weapons, 600,000 weapons. Sounds like that could be a high crime or misdemeanor that Joe Biden may have committed. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Rob Carson, host of the Newsmax Daily Podcast. Tired of boring traditional news updates? How about one with a conservative point of view and it's actually funny? You can subscribe for free on the Apple Podcast app and it downloads directly to your smartphone so you can listen while driving, uh, to work, riding a bike, at the gym, or even while lobster fishing off the East Coast. Subscribe today with the Apple Podcast app or go to NewsmaxTV.com slash podcasts for other platforms. Something's All I can say... Is, is that the fake, fake news just doesn't get it, do they? Uh, they're often not qualified to get it. I don't expect them to have this kind of insight. But you see these generals, uh, big, tough generals, four stars, right? Um, some of them are scaredy cats. And like everybody else, they don't like being yelled at. So who yells at a four-star general? Uh, sometimes Congress. And when they go to Capitol Hill and they get yelled at by somebody like Kirsten Gillibrand, the Democrat from New York, that can be a traumatizing experience. And they'll do anything so that doesn't happen again. 
This happened a couple of years ago. That's General Neller from the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah, getting chewed out by uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York. I can tell you, your answers today are unsatisfactory. They do not go far enough. And I would like you to know what you intend to do to the commanders who are responsible for good order and discipline. All of this behavior is in violation of Article 120 and Article 34, as so stated. They are violating the code of criminal justice. If you're dedicated to fixing the culture of the Marines and all the services, what do you plan to do to hold commanders responsible who fail to get this done? Wow. Well, she's upset about uh, revenge porn. That was a real issue, and it is, unfortunately, sadly, uh, throughout society. But these politicians like to take issues that affect all institutions and just lay it all on the military sometimes. And the military doesn't always do the best job at defending itself. You know, you know, you've heard it before, but we're going to have to change how we see ourselves and how we do, how we treat each other. Um, that's a that's a lame answer, but ma'am, that's all. I've, that's the best I can tell you right now. Um, we've got to change, and that's on me. I think he took it a little bit too hard because when the generals go up there and make those kinds of promises to these senators, what happens next? The troops, the Marines, the soldiers, the sailors, they get saddled up with all of these other side projects that have nothing to do with defeating the enemy, from climate change to fighting non-existent white extremism in the ranks, LGBTQ, trans rights, all that stuff. Diversity, equity, and inclusion sounds great, but this stuff takes time, and there are so many hours in the day, just so many hours in the day. Uh, and that can take away from mission preparedness and focus, big time. Uh, for the senators, they just love these moments. They tend to go viral. Well, why has it been delayed? Uh, Ma'am, at the... Uh LACPR is... A, you know, do me a favor. Could you say senator instead of ma'am? Yes, it's sir. just a thing. I worked so hard to get that title, so I'd appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Yes, senator. That kind of thing. Cheap shots at uh, men and women in uniform. Uh, all that congressional testimony and all the projects they have to fulfill for senators, members of Congress, the administration, they're all happy until we get to the battlefield. This, this stuff has nothing to do with LGBTQ recruitment or women's equity or history or trans uh, whatever. It doesn't. All that stuff gets in the way, and fiascos like this are more likely when the Pentagon has its priorities all out of whack. All right. Also this from Joe Biden today. One of the lessons I hope our students can unlearn is that politics doesn't have to be this way. Politics doesn't have to be this way. They're growing up in an environment where they see it's like a, like a war, like a bitter feud. Politics doesn't have to be this way. That's what he's been doing his entire career, his entire career. Now, at the age of, what is he, 79? Now he thinks it's time to change? Joe, who are you? You're not fooling anybody. 
What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Republican voters, the folks out in the outside this White House. I'm not talking about the, the elected officials. I'm talking about voters. It is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. That is the worst line, by the way. But anyway, you can see he's very, very, uh, he can be very, very mean, questioning everybody, other, everybody else's motives. And don't forget his well-established record of being a chronic liar. What law school did you attend, and where did you place in that class? And the other question oh, is, could you quickly, I, I think we all I, I think I probably have a much higher IQ than you do, I suspect. <laughs> I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. In the first year in law school, I decided I didn't want to be in law school and ended up in the bottom two-thirds of my class, and then decided I wanted to stay, went back to law school, and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I won the international moot court competition. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only need 123 credits, and I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. All that stuff was not true. The media called him out on it. Joe tried to explain his way out of it. Back then, the media was a bit more aggressive. Uh, watch this. He can't talk his way out of it. He thinks he can, but he really can't. Do you feel you're able to control, to put in the vernacular of your mouth, that you can think before you talk? Well, I've been in this business for 15 years. Um, and uh, I, uh, um, I let my record of 15 years versus the transgression that you're referring to uh, stand and you can make you all can make that judgment i feel very capable of uh using my mouth and sync with my mind <laughs> we knew back then he had a dropout not long after this there's something very very wrong with this guy well i've been around for 15 years so what if i lied all day yesterday all right now this Black lives do matter. Black lives matter. Of course they do. Not the way the Black Lives Matter organization says or white liberals say. They only care when a black life is taken by a white cop. That's the only time it counts. That's the only time it's worthy of their attention. Well, that is wrong. And what's happening right now is a total and complete crisis. And we are highlighting it. The life of 12-year-old London Michael Bean mattered. He was shot and killed Wednesday afternoon in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There was some sort of argument between local neighborhood rivals. It's not clear whether Bean was involved in this fight, but someone in the crowd pulled a gun and shot him. Now, family and friends say that he was an energetic kid who tried to turn every negative situation into something positive. People in the area say the problems are within the community. Not with the police, by the way. I think the focus needs to stop being just about the police and be about what's happening in our community right now. The shooter is believed to be uh, a teenager, but they have no arrests, uh, no arrests to report. A GoFundMe page has been set up 
for London Bean's funeral costs. You can see the information right there. He is the third uh, young person, minor, to be shot and killed in Minneapolis in the past few months, a city where liberal politicians like Elon Omar want to abolish the police altogether. London Michael Bean shot and killed in Minneapolis this Wednesday. He was just 12 years old. We'll be right back. Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, very close associate of Donald Trump. He was obviously there on September 11, 2001, our mayor here in the city, and he was a magnificent leader. This footage uh, became so famous. He was providing leadership that was so desperately needed. Our Mike Carter revisits that moment today with Rudy Giuliani. Mayor, what's the situation right now? It's one of the most indelible images of 9-11, the moment Rudy Giuliani became America's mayor. Now, for the first time 20 years later, Giuliani retraces his steps from that infamous day. Obviously, we're walking faster than this, trying to get there. Up to this point, it was still an emergency. It hadn't become an, an out-of-body experience yet. But that would all change in a New York minute. Giuliani phoned the White House, reaching President George W. Bush's aide, Chris Hennick, who informed the mayor that more attacks may be on the way. I did ask Chris how many planes are unaccounted for. He said at least seven, Mayor. Are any of them headed for the city? He said you can't discount that, but I wouldn't worry about that. He was very confident, we'll take them down. And I said, well, my main concern now is going to be secondary attacks. Maybe they'll bomb St. Patrick's, maybe they'll bomb uh, the Empire State Building. I think they thought they had destroyed the stock exchange by taking that building down. With the entire police department and the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force deployed, Giuliani asked the White House for military support before heading toward the foot of the Twin Towers. And then I could see the two towers head on. And I would say I stopped and I said, oh my God. Because when you see it straight on, all the way up there, the flames coming out, I don't know, it's the worst shot I've ever seen in my whole life. The police said, be careful. Things are coming off the building and they're going as far away as up there. By things, it was like pieces of steel, pieces of debris. As he got closer to the towers, Giuliani ran into an old friend, New York City Fire Department Chaplain Michael Judge. When I got to about right here, right over here, I saw Father Judge and I always had a thing with him, I always would say to him, Father, will you please pray for us? So he would say, no, uh, better if you pray, it's more, it'd be more unusual. God will pay attention. I said that to him. I didn't get the usual humorous response. Instead, I got, Mayor, this is really bad. He went like this, I'm glad you have big shoulders. Keep praying. Now, he never said that to me before. Later that morning, when the South Tower collapsed, Debris crashed through the North Tower lobby, killing many inside, including Father Michael Judge, who stayed until the end praying for firefighters and administering last rites to the dead. Police told Giuliani to keep looking up to anticipate falling debris. That's when the mayor saw an image he would never forget. All of a sudden, I saw a man, maybe 100, 
101, 102 stories up. He must have been this big, right? In my vision, he seemed this big. And I saw some flames behind him, and I realized Joe was right. People were throwing themselves out. And I stopped. I looked up there. It would, it would have been right there. That's where the, to, the, to, the, to the right of that building. I looked right up there, and I watched him, and I was thinking, is he going to do it or not? And I think I said to myself, I hope he doesn't, because he could kill someone. All of a sudden, he, he fell out. I watched him come all the way down. He hit the ground. It was at that moment, Giuliani turned to his police commissioner, Bernie Carrick. I paused at that point. I grabbed Bernie's arm, and I said, Bernie, this is much worse than anything we've ever handled. We gotta just say to ourselves, it's beyond us. We'll make decisions. We gotta make them quickly. We're never gonna know if they're right, and we're just gonna pray to God to make them right. We gotta go with our instincts, and thank God, everybody around here has experience. But there's no game plan for this. We're gonna have to invent it. Giuliani asked Fire Chief Peter Gancy if helicopters could be used to evacuate the people above the fires. He said, Mayor, I, my guys can save everybody below the fire. He was telling me he can't save the people above the fire. Who went through your head? I don't know. I guess um, just I felt useless. I felt I'm the mayor of New York City. I, this is not being uh, overly whatever. I had the best police department in the world, the best fire department in the world. There's no question about that. I had the best emergency people in the world, if, and we can't save them. And, and I, I started to think, who the hell are these people that came here and did this? And this Ben Laden guy, gotta be the incarnation of evil. You just think about these people were just going to work that day. They, they didn't do anything to anybody. I want to ask you who you were on that morning of September 11th, when you woke up, you got out of bed in that morning, and who you became when you went to bed that night. How did you change? When I went to bed that night, I took out a, bi uh, a biography that's been written of Winston Churchill, and I read uh, the chapters on the Battle of Britain so I could get advice about how to motivate my people and then uh, I didn't fall asleep. I, I maybe 10 minutes here and there because I kept the television on. I remember at one point because I had gotten through the whole day and I kept it together. And I, I, I mean, I know emergencies and I knew I had done a good job. And I said, my father would be proud of me. And I said, dad, you know, I think you'd be, I think you'd be proud of me. I think I was in the right place at the right time. And if, I don't know if I'm going to get through the rest of it, but at least I got through the first day. He got through that and so much more in the days, weeks and months after it. Rudy Giuliani really was America's mayor. That was Mike Carter, our Newsmax reporter, walking with Rudy Giuliani. As I was watching that piece, I was riveted. Uh, I also thought a little bit about where I was that day which was uh, at the corner for New Yorkers, Church in Cortland Street. That's the address of the World Trade Center, right across the street. This is about 4.30 in the afternoon, just before World Trade Center 7 came down. I was a reporter for 
New York One news that day. And uh, after the building came down, I foolishly wanted to uh, stay for a bit. Uh, made some wrong decisions, to be sure, but um, I'll never forget it. Uh, my uh, cameraman that day was uh, Baron Gilliam, by the way, a uh, very talented photographer. All right, I will be back shortly with the former police commissioner, uh, Ray Kelly, my father, and uh, Steve Forbes a little bit later. Uh, stay with us. It's our America. We built it. Courage. Freedom. Millions go to Newsmax when they need to know. Start today on the free Newsmax app. Newsmax is real news for real people. That is Ray Kelly, the longest serving police commissioner in New York City history. He assumed office shortly after the September 11, 2001 attacks. And it looked like New York City remained a target for the terrorists. They tried to attack this city another 16 times. But over the next 12 years, each of those terror threats were thwarted. Those terror plots, uh, they caught them before they could strike. The former police commissioner, Ray Kelly, who also happens to be my father, everybody, uh, joins us now. Welcome back to Newsmax, uh, Commissioner. Dad, how are you? Great to be with you, son. You I know, love the show. <laughs> thank you very much. I know you and mom are loyal watchers. Uh, so appreciate it. By the way, folks, uh, you are coming to us from your home, which is maybe a stone's throw, literally, from the World Trade Center site. You could not live in your building after the attacks for how long? The buildings were uninhabitable for a while. A little over two months. Uh, we were in hotels and uh, people's homes. We were sort of vagabonds for two months. The city obviously uh, changed forever. It looked like we were going to be targeted and we were targeted you became commissioner about three and a half months after september 11th you set about creating something new different something that really had never been tried before counterterrorism like the country had never seen at the local level tell us how you set that up well i was a commissioner for the first world trade center attack and when the second attack happened the horrendous 9-11 attack uh, i certainly wanted to get back in the game. And thankfully, Mayor Bloomberg asked me to be a uh, police commissioner. And uh, we knew that we had to do a lot more to protect the, the city. Uh, we had the largest police department in the country, the most diverse, tremendous language skills, yet we really weren't engaged in, in fighting against the terrorism. So we brought in a lot of experts from the federal government. FBI, DEA, DIA, the, those folks brought in a lot of technology, cameras, license plate readers, positioned people overseas, uh, 12 uh, locations overseas were manned by New York City police officers to act as sort of a tripwire or a listening post uh, for uh, New York City. Uh, we did a lot of things that other police departments uh, never did before. And uh, thankfully, as you said, we had 16 plots against the city by terrorists, and none of them came to fruition. 
It took a lot of hard work on the part of a lot of people on both the local and federal level. Since you left, since you're no longer in office, neither is uh, Mike Bloomberg, who uh, was a Republican when he first became mayor of this city. There have been several terror plots and actual terror attacks here in New York City. Bombs have gone off, multiple bombs in Chelsea, New York. Uh, we had a uh, hijacked vehicle run down bike riders, about a dozen of them killed on the West Side Highway. Uh, several more, uh, a suspicious uh, explosion at uh, Central Park tied to uh, potential terrorists. What changed? Why did you guys have it under wraps, but the new crowd doesn't seem to? Well, I, I would say uh, if things have changed, and I'm not 100% certain they have, if they've changed, they probably changed as a result of the mayor. Mayor de Blasio has never been a fan of the police department. He's held the department back in, in many situations where they should have been more, more proactive. And they've settled cases in, in as far as the terrorism area is concerned that should not have been settled. Was settled for, for. So I think the major factor, and certainly in crime going up in New York, and perhaps the terrorist threats as well, is the mayor and his conduct for the last almost eight years. We also see that crime, uh, not only in New York, but across the country, it seems to be out of control. Uh, I thought this was kind of, <laughs> we had managed crime, we had figured out proactive policing works. Everything, not only regarding terrorism, but I believe during, uh, as well as street crime, all of the advances have unraveled. What is it going to take to turn this around once again? Well, the police have been knocked back on their heels, quite frankly. We know that at least 140 laws have been passed in 30 states to restrict the police, to monitor the police in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. So cops are not engaging the way they used to. They're not, as I say, using proactive uh, strategies. And I believe that's the reason why you see this rise in crime. We had an increase in murders nationally of 30%, which is the highest number that it's, that it's ever gone up. And here in New York City, we had a 40% increase in murder, 100% increase in shootings. And that's true, certainly in big cities throughout America. That's where the, the, the problem lies. And I believe it is the restrictions that have been put on the police officers. Look, some of them are absolutely necessary, no question about it. But there are some really absurd ones that give the police a very strong signal that, hey, we don't want you to enforce the law. We don't want you to do the things that going on in in the past as far as enforcement is is concerned so i think we're going to be at an elevated level of crime for the foreseeable future because the change uh, anytime soon uh as we wrap up i want to point out that you're a marine veteran you spent a year in vietnam and i've heard you mention this before but being a marine a marine officer helped you lead the NYPD. Uh, can you tell us how? Well, I believe that virtually everything I know about uh, leadership, I learned in the Marine Corps. It's a, it's a great institution, a great organization. They do, they train you, train you well. Greg, you're a Marine yourself. I think you can, you can attest to that. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, lots of things. And there are some of these practices that you don't even realize 
you've gotten from the Marine Corps, but they're with you. They stick with you. So um, I love the organization. It was great for me. And obviously, I love the police department as well. Two terrific institutions. All right. Well, Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner, Marine, and uh, my dad. Very proud of that. Very proud of all of that. Thank you very much. And we'll see you later. Okay. Thank you, son. I'll okay. see you later. All right. We'll all right. be right back. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it to be mandatory. We cannot require someone to be vaccinated. That's just not what we can do. I wouldn't anticipate that we would be putting requirements on private sector companies, uh, and I would expect that we would uh, allow the space for them to put those requirements in place themselves or decide what is best for their workforces. Washington, how do we know they're lying? Their lips are moving. I love that. I just... Of course, uh, Joe Biden is now trying to mandate the vaccine for pretty much everybody. I'd like to bring in one of our favorites, Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. Uh, he knows business, he knows government, he knows the media. And Steve, welcome back. Uh, first off, your reaction to everything related to this announcement yesterday? Uh, well, it's extraordinary. It's utterly unconstitutional. It'll be thrown out by the courts. It is, uh, uh, why don't they mandate that uh, people eat spinach each day or not, 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 not drink soda pop? And it's also, uh, Greg, a power grab. Uh, they want to establish the precedent, and that's why I don't think it's going to last what they did, the precedent that the government can tell any business any time to do what it wants to do. That's what they're doing here. And trying to marshal businesses to do these kind of edicts is absolutely profoundly wrong. I think it's going to do more damage. And the, also the way he talks to the American people as if we're a bunch of dumb kids, this condescending manner. If you don't do it my way, you're just a bunch of dumb dumbs. And uh, that is offensive and hurts the vaccination uh, program. Exactly. The tone, the tone was offensive. Uh, I'm wondering, yes, a power grab to be sure. Do you think, though, the timing of it has anything to do with the fiasco in Afghanistan? Let's face it, that was uh, really bad. It's Joe Biden's fault, his administration. They don't want us talking about that. That's my sense. I think that's part of the equation here. What do you think? Absolutely. We've never had a commander in chief surrender like that. You know, Saigon fell because of uh, the strength of the North and the agreements we made years before. But uh, this time it was done purely by a commander in chief. It didn't have to be done. So, yes, everything they've been doing recently is all to divert attention. That's why he's suddenly shown more energy in a week than he has in the previous seven months. Though he hasn't uh, not been busy, he's done more harm in seven months than Jimmy Carter. I don't know if any of you readers are old enough to remember him, did in four years back in the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. There are some big businesses, apparently, that are signaling that they want to go ahead with this. They want to go along with this. They want to cooperate. Um, and I don't know why they're doing that. Is it because they just want to keep things, uh, you know, peaceful? Uh, they want to be on the good side of this administration. So I think they're just trying to uh, buy the peace, mm. uh, pay off and hope that uh, the, the storm passes them by. But the pushback among their own people and the American public is going to be intense. This is not America. We're individuals. You persuade. And if you do the right persuasion, 
most people will go along. That takes work <laughs> and that takes yes. skill and talent and that's severely lacking in this uh, president. Steve Much Forbes. Much easier to give an order like a commissar. Yes, indeed. Steve Forbes, so grateful you're on the public scene and saying what you're saying and doing what you're doing. Chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media to be continued, sir, and we'll be right back. Good night, everybody. And of course, we will never forget.